Okay, let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you this evening. We thank you for uh, all that you've given us, all the many blessings and the promises that you've kept and many promises yet to be, be fulfilled. Lord, we thank you for the time that we can spend studying your word together. We praise you for the uh, ability and the privilege to fellowship together and to uh, eat together in some cases and just to get together and have fun. Lord, it's, a, it's fun to study your word. It really is because we learn so much and spirit leads us in the right direction. So we pray he does that again tonight. Lord, thank you for the little bit of rain we got this morning. Thank you for the uh, change in the weather. Maybe that'll bring some more rain in. That'd be good. But we praise you, Lord. We do pray for Israel. We pray for the things that are going on over there. We do pray for this country, Lord, because we are spinning out of control rapidly. Uh, hopefully that's going to stop soon, but we don't know that for sure. So we pray for uh, your guidance and your assurance, Lord, that everything's going to be as you want it to be. And that's what's important. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Marcy monologue. Uh, you guys that are, that are new, I, I come up with all the current events of the week, and some of them are quite interesting. <clears throat> this one, actually, Pastor Max sent this to me. And I had, I had suspicions these were right, but what he sent to me is really kind of shocking. It's talking about the Muslimization of the world. And so he's saying when Muslim population in a particular city exceeds 2%, they're, they're or less than 2%, excuse me, they're pretty peace-loving and in their minority don't really bother many people. That's us. When the Muslim population is 2 to 5%, they begin to fight for the government to authorize them to exercise Islamic law in the Muslim ghettos and recruit new members from prisons and streets and so on. And Denmark, Germany, United Kingdom, Spain, and Thailand fall into that category. When the Muslim population reaches 10 to 20%, nationwide riots occur. Muslims put forward a series of demands, building large mosques, giving supranatural and supra-legal treatment. In other words, they're above the law. And such countries, uh, those are India, Israel, and Russia. How about when the Muslim population, I'm skipping a little bit, goes from 60 to 80%. Secular laws are replaced by Sharia law. Political and religious regimes are established. Cops don't go into neighborhoods. They have their own police force in their Sharia areas. And countries like that are Albania, Malaysia, Qatar, Sudan. When the population reaches 80 to 99%, the country is engaged in intimidation, violence, and jihad every day. Carrying out ethnic cleansing, massacre, the country expels infidels. And those countries are like Bangladesh at 83%, Egypt at 90, Indonesia at 86, Iran at 98, Iraq at 97, Pakistan at 97, Palestine at 99. Palestine, I wonder where that is. We said Palestine. Where's that? There's no such country. Syria, 90. Turkey, 99.8. But what's interesting, in the end of this, that's what Mac wanted me to see. When the Muslim population is 100%, that means everything's cool. Everybody's at peace, right? No. In fact, none of that's the case. Peace has not been achieved because Muslim groups of different sects will attack and fight each other. And the leader of Sharia law in the country might eliminate another Muslim sect for various region, reasons, and that's Afghanistan, Somalia, and Yemen for that one. And of course, you know that uh, the majority of Muslims, like 95%, are what are called Sunni Muslims. And they are more peaceful than the other, and the other are the Shiite Muslims, and that's Iran. They're like 5%. The Iran-Iraq war back in the, uh, when was that, in the 90s or the 80s, I think it was the 80s and 90s, it was Iraq versus Iran. In other words, it was Muslim against Muslim, Shia against Shiite, and it basically came to a draw. Nobody really won that war, but that's going on today, too. Guess who has more slaves than anybody else in the whole world? Muslims. They have slaves. Black slaves, even. Do we ever say anything about that? Oh. We're trying to give reparations to the blacks in this country that are three or four generations removed from having <laughs> slaves as, as ancestors. That's, well, we won't go there. All right. 
some interesting things I found I wanted to share with you. This particular article is, is interesting simply because it puts a little bit of common sense to the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecy. Meaning, what does that mean? Well, the conjecture is from reading the Bible, you get the impression that in this day and age, if you're going to have a war like, like uh, Russia, Turkey, and Iran coming down and trying to take over Israel, you'd think they would use sophisticated weapons. Well, you don't get that from reading Ezekiel 38 and 39. And why? Well, why are they coming? Why would they want to come down there? They want the oil and the gas. They wouldn't want to destroy anything. So that makes sense, all right? So what else? Um, if we believe God's prophetic word, and we all do, we know that Israel will never be destroyed by any kind of weaponry. We know that for sure. So some believe that Israel is invincible, but we know that's not true today. As a matter of fact, Amir Sarfati is talking about something really bad happened this, this last 24-hour period, and he's not at liberty to tell us why. But it wasn't good for the IDF, apparently. The uh, Hamas, or it might have been Hezbollah, has actually had some victories. That's not good. But we'll hear about that probably tomorrow. Um, let's see. I'm trying to skip over a bunch of stuff. Bible prophecy foretells the area of Persia, of course, that's Iran, will be so devastated uh, because of what they're doing there. What are they doing there? Well, if you look at a map and you see that the Persian Gulf Basically, what borders that on the south is Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and, and excuse me, United Arab Emirates. But on the northern border, border of the Persian Gulf is Bashir, Iran, and that's where all their nuclear facilities are. And so if you go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 49, you see the, the prophecy of Elam. And the prophecy of Elam says that that area of the world, Elam, will be completely destroyed in some time in the future, which has never happened in the past. Well, that makes sense because that's where their nuclear capabilities are. Iran has nuclear capabilities. They supposedly have plenty of uranium that's been enriched to 60%, <clears throat> which is not enough for a nuclear weapon. It has to be 90 or better. That's why back in the days of everybody fighting against nuclear power plants, they were so ridiculous about that, thinking that they would blow up and cause a nuclear incident. The uranium and nuclear rods in a nuclear power plant are 5% uranium. It's impossible for them to blow up. It won't happen. Now, radiation can leak, yes. That would be a local event. That wouldn't be a big deal. But Iran, Iran has been using centrifuges to, to increase the percentage of uranium in the ore that they have. And they say within, within this coming month, they're supposed to have plenty of 90% or better uranium, pure uranium to make nuclear weapons. They say they have enough right now, but at least what we're told, to make at least three. Problem now becomes, can they get them from Iran to where they want to blow something up? The answer to that is they're, they're still working on their ballistic missiles and they don't have all those perfected yet. But where they're doing all that work is on the Persian Gulf at Bashir. So what do we think is gonna happen? Prophecy says will be destroyed. People will flee. It says they flee to the four corners, four directions from Elam. What's that going to be? I think that's a nuclear attack by Israel to wipe out their nuclear capability. So look for that. I think that'll happen soon. And he says that here too. He's talking about that will be probably nuclear contaminations that makes all those people flee. Okay, um, let's see. Yeah, there's a couple of things in this article that are really, really concerning. Well, whether you knew it or not, but just this last week, our debt in this country reached $34 trillion. It took three months to go from 33 to 34. The interest on $34 trillion debt is $2.3 billion a day, daily. So, an economic catastrophe, yeah, it's just waiting to happen. As a matter of fact, it should have happened a long time ago. When the debt was $4 trillion under George H.W., I was expecting an economic collapse back then. But now it's $30 trillion more than that. So I think God's holding off 
he's keeping that from happening just because the time is right for the rapture. So anyway, second sign of impending danger comes from the war in the Middle East. Kim Jong-un is, uh, continues to warn of an imminent nuclear attack because he's blustery, he always has been, but we never can tell whether he's telling the truth or not. American bases in Syria and Iraq have come under attack about 150 times and no response from the Biden administration. Matter of fact, no news about that. Now, Amir Sarfati says basically no Jews, no news. So if it's us, don't even talk about it. Number three, the Houthis. This, this gets me. Here's this bunch of radical Muslims in Yemen at the foot of the, of the boot of Saudi Arabia. And they're shooting missiles at our ships, they're shooting missiles at Iran, excuse me, at Israel. And nobody's doing anything about it. I'm, you know how long it take us to wipe out the, those groups in Yemen if we just took our mind to it? About 30 minutes. We're not doing that. The Houthis continue to attack ships in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, many of the major uh, shipping companies of the world are, will no longer go through the Suez Canal because they have to go right by Yemen to do that. So we're going to go around the Horn of Africa, which will increase our cost of everything. Isn't that interesting? And Ukraine is still in the news. I can't believe this. Um, they're attacking Russian cities. And why are they doing that? So they can continue to ask for money. You guys realize, once again, I'm going to mention this because I think it's important. Ukraine has never been an independent country. It's always been part of Russia. Putin didn't like what was going on in Ukraine. It's a very rich country in material wealth. They have lithium mines. They have all kinds of other things like that. They also have uh, oligarchs that live there that control lots of big companies. That's actually Burisma is, is in Ukraine, which is Hunter Biden is where he went, you know, to get all that money from China. Um, <clears throat> when we send money to Ukraine, less than half of it ever gets dispensed in Ukraine. It just disappears. And you wonder where it went. I know where it went, but right back to Washington, D.C. is where it went. Yep, right into Biden's pocket and everybody else in Washington. <clears throat> so that's a real problem. Um, an ominous sign of great danger, according to this particular author, is that, uh, and this is, this is weird, this, I haven't seen this before, but this eclipse is coming on April the 8th. You know, we have a total solar eclipse coming. All right, over the years, solar eclipses have relationships one to another. Okay, so what I'm saying here is, um, there was an eclipse in April of 21st, 2017. <coughs> Excuse me. And this one is going to happen on April 8th, 2024. We'll form an X over America. Now, what does that mean? Well, back in uh, the 1800s, on June 16th, 1806, solar eclipse occurred. And on September 17th, 1811, which is only, seven, or only five years later, formed... <laughs> Excuse me, I got stuck, something stuck in my throat. <clears> something <throat> they formed an X over the new Madrid fault zone. And that X led to a huge uh, earthquake. It killed uh, the city between, let's say, uh, about 6,000, 10,000 earthquakes occurred at that time. <clears throat> killed a bunch of people. We're going to have an X formed over us on. Uh, April the 8th. So whether that means anything or not, I don't know, but it's just something that's happened before. Yeah, it's a little city. Uh, they've got it here. New Madrid was, let's see, an area from, uh, it's called the New Madrid Fault Zone, but the little city is, is New Madrid, Missouri. Southern Illinois is, is actually where it's going to be in, in part of Missouri. So that's where it's going to be. And then I got a, a little a little thing here from Jan Markell, which I really respect. She's a great uh, prophecy portrayer. And she's saying the world has been in an uncontrollable rage since October the 7th, 2023. Basically, what she's talking about is that ever since 
Uh, Hamas attacked Israel. Anti-Semitism has been raising its head more and more, as he's right. The world calls evil good, and we see that all the time. We see the people hollering out things like, from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free. You know, and people repeat that stupid sign, stupid saying, not realizing what they're talking about. When they say from the river to the sea, they're talking about from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean. They're going to wipe out all the Jews is what they're talking about. But people don't know that. They're, uh, as this author refers to them as the brainwashed agitators from the TikTok generation, which I think is very, very appropriate. So the um, Bible teaches that uh, because of that anti-Semitism, things are really going to start exploding now. I expect the first thing to be the Psalm 83 war because that takes care of all of Israel's close-in enemies. And the next thing that happens after that is Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, which takes care of all the rest of Israel's enemies at the far reaches of the world. And basically that's, that's really what the people that are heading up Israel are believing as well. In other words, what I'm saying is Benny Gantz, who's a member of Israel's war cabinet, said if the world and Lebanon's government will not stop to stop the shooting in Israel, the IDF will. So they're going to ramp, it's going to keep ramping this up and they should, I'm not, I'm not faulting them at all. They should be doing that. Uh, on January the 3rd, two bombs exploded. There's a fourth anniversary of Trump's assassination of General Soleimani. Two bombs exploded in uh, Tehran, killed 103 people and injured 141 people. We don't know who did it. But ISIS claimed, claimed uh, responsibility. Why would they be doing something? Because they don't like. Anyway. And let's see, what else does she have? I think I'm getting out of, out of uh, sequence here. I didn't number my pages, and I should have done that. Okay. One of the, one of the people that I always go to to uh, get information is uh, Dr. Damon Duck. And he's a great prophecy teacher. He's been around for a long time. I hope he sticks around too, because he's over 80 years old. But what he's talking about is the nuclear arms confrontation between Iran and Israel. It's getting closer. I think he's right. Um, Iran has increased its production of weapon-grade uranium. I've just told you about that. Iran is the one who's supporting Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, and so that's where they're getting all of their weapons and their money. Um, Israeli and Western officials don't believe that Iran is producing weapons-grade uranium for peaceful purposes, and I'm going, gee, where did they ever get that idea? What a, what a brilliant deduction. Wow. Let's see. Amir Sarfati wrote just a couple of weeks ago, he said, I believe that the worst of the war has not yet even begun. Wow. Currently, there are only skirmishes taking place across our northern border, and that will not last, he says. Both Hezbollah and the Iranian leaders, as well as the generals of the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, have their strategies planned for an all-out war across the Lebanese and Syrian borders. There was a guy I saw on Telegram who was a Lebanese, and he said their country has actually been split. He says there is still a Lebanon, but he says the southern part of Lebanon is no longer Lebanon, it is Hezbollah. So that's, that's disheartening, but I think that means the Jews will wipe them out. <laughs> Interesting, the last year, our uh, guy that says he's president, you know who he is. I don't want to say his name. 37% of the year he was on vacation. 138 days out of 365. <laughs> and this last week, with all the stuff that's going on with, with uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and everything else that's going on, he was on vacation. Also, our, sec our uh, Secretary of Defense just decided that he needed to go in the hospital, didn't tell anybody. He didn't even tell his deputy that he was going into the hospital. And so basically the military was completely without political leadership for a week. The guy ought to be fired for that. Yeah, I think he will be. 
I don't even remember his name. Do you guys know his name? I forgot what his name was. What is it? Austin, yeah, Boston. Let's see. Here's Dr. Duck going into a few other things, and then we'll stop. Um, <laughs> I won't read that. Who cares? Um, <laughs> the uh, World Health Organization director, you guys have probably seen his picture. He wears dark glasses. His name is Gebrasius. He says everybody needs to eat less meat and to transition away from fossil fuels, uh, petroleum products, in other words. Why? To combat climate change and protect the planet. Okay. He said, even though the world has taken a giant step forward, we're still only at the start of the journey. He said, stay tuned. Now, why do I say that? Because in May of this year, less than, less than four months from now, world leaders will vote on international an international pandemic treaty and international health regulations that if passed, it will empower the World Health Organization to force its will on everyone on earth. Wearing masks, separating, you know, all that other stuff that we, we had to do a couple of years ago. Okay, how about some good news? Here's some good news, sort of. Pope Francis, recently gave his approval to Roman Catholics blessing same-sex couples, okay? Many of his officials are refusing to go along with it. Probably he will resign because of that. I hope he does. He is about as uh, Christian as, as a uh, cupcake. Uh, concerning an increase in the frequency and intensity of natural disasters, there was a 7.6 earthquake in uh, Japan recently. Uh, four nations, Japan, Russia, North Korea, and South Korea, are bracing for tsunami waves up to 16 feet. I guess that probably already happened, of course. The next thing he mentions here is an increase in the frequency and intensity of wars and rumors of wars, and we know that for sure. Kim Jong-un is rattling his saber, his uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, departure from the faith at the end of the age. Professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville, which is a Catholic university in Ohio, urged Pope Francis to resign, spend the rest of his life in a monastery praying for forgiveness over his approval of blessings for gay couples. Sounds good to me. Yep. The United Methodist Church, or excuse me, the UK Methodist Church, just released an inclusive language guide advising Methodists to stop using the terms husband and wife because many will find the words offensive. That's really good too. Uh, concerning the global economic collapse, like I mentioned once before, interest on America's national debt is $879 billion in the fiscal year 2023, which is $2.4 billion daily. Economic collapse in the US would likely collapse the global economy, absolutely. I think that's going to happen. It may not happen before the rapture, but then again, it might. Um, financial analysts are now concerned that the U.S. economy could be in trouble in 2024, and I'm going, gee, do you think? And the last thing here is uh, Terry James, who's a guy from Rapture Ready, he's a very good prophecy writer, too. He said, quote, Christians are a roadblock to globalism, and the world powers know it. But what, that, what does that mean? That means there's going to be increased uh, persecution of Christians more than ever before. And we're seeing that already. I was watching Jack Hibbs one day, which by the way, I highly recommend him if you haven't watched him before, but he gave 10 reasons why, or 10 reasons how not to survive 2024. How not to survive 2024. And I'll read them real quick. I've got all the scriptures that go along with them if you want it. But number one, give up on your Bible reading. Number two, slow your growth down spiritually. Number three, allow your eyes and ears to take a break. I think a lot of people are on a break on that one. Number four, stop trusting God. Number five, keep thinking about yourself. Number six, start focusing on being bored with what you have. I thought that was a good one. You know, in other words, being dissatisfied, discontent. Number seven, let unproductive things steal your time. 
Uh, gee, I hope anybody in this room does that. <laughs> Number eight, <laughs> believe in yourself and others. Yeah. Number nine, be dumbed down to the coming signs and, and indicators. In other words, don't pay attention to what's going on in the world. And last, stop refilling your spiritual tank. <laughs> thought those were pretty good. He's, he's very, very good. If you haven't heard him or watched him, you should. Okay, we are in Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> and we're going to be talking about the greatest man who ever lived. It's not Jesus. <laughs> the greatest, purely 100% 42 chromosomes man who ever lived. Okay? Jesus wanted the Jews to discover that he was the Messiah that they'd always been looking for, obviously. And Job, Abraham, Moses wrote about him, talked about him, and they ought to know that. So in Malachi, of course, prophesied that some a forerunner would come. And so, of course, Jesus would come as Savior, Redeemer, and then eventually he's coming as King of Kings. But he did fulfill the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants when he, when he came as a man and died for our sins. So Jesus in this passage is going to honor John the Baptizer, and I'm going to always refer to him that way because people, some people might hear me say John the Baptist and think I'm talking about the Baptist church or something, and I'm not. It's John the Baptizer. Jesus was not merely honoring John the Baptizer. He definitely deserved to be honored. There's no question about that. But Christ's main goal in discussing John the Baptizer here in verses 24 through 30 is where we are was to show how he actually revealed and established Jesus as the expected one, the true Messiah that the Jews had been desperately wanting. So he, that's the reason he was actually talking about John the Baptizer, because he fulfilled, John the Baptizer fulfilled his calling by, by Malachi, that he would be the one to reveal the, quote, expected one. And now, remember, how many prophets had been around since Malachi to John? None. About 430 years, no prophets. And so uh, Malachi, like I said, was, pro was approximately 430 B.C. And so at least this partially explains, I think, why vast crowds were flocking to hear John the baptizer preach because he was acting like a prophet and they hadn't heard a prophet before. Herod Antipas did arrest and imprison John, but this is interesting. When did he do that? Do you know? In relationship to Jesus and what was going on in Jesus' life, when did Antipas arrest John and throw him into prison? Just before Passover. Surprisingly, just, before, just after Jesus was tempted by Satan, which was very, very early. See, what happened? Jesus went and got baptized by John the Baptizer, right? And then he was taken out of the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And right after he came back from that point, Herod Antipas arrested John. So it was like, John did what he's supposed to do. He said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He got arrested. I, we didn't really realize that. We were shocked. We looked at it, but that's right there. It's right there in Matthew 3. It says that. Uh, so... What's remarkable about the people's attitude toward John the baptizer was he wasn't any kind of a crowd pleaser. <laughs> they didn't like what he had to say because he was telling them to repent of their sins. What he was doing, he's saying, you guys are just like the Gentiles. You don't even follow the law. That must have hurt. They didn't like that at all. So uh, he referred to them, Luke 3, 7, he referred to their leaders as venomous snakes scrambling to flee the wrath to come is what he described them as John the baptizer did. And those who heard John still wanted to be baptized by him. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, listen, that baptism was the same kind of baptism that a proselyte got. In other words, if a Gentile came to the Jews and said, I want to become a Jew, they would baptize him into the Jewish faith. That's the same kind of baptism John the baptizer was doing with all the Jews, because what they were saying was we need to be baptized in the Jewish faith because we haven't been following the law. We're just like the Gentiles. 
that's really revealing to me because I always wondered what in the world would draw all those people to hear this guy run them down. But number one, they saw him as a prophet and they hadn't had a prophet since Malachi. So nobody alive there had ever seen a prophet or heard one. And the second thing was they wanted to actually become Jews again. They really wanted to start following the law, recommit their lives to following the law. Now understand, once again, this is in, still in the days or the age of the law, right? Because Jesus is still alive. So we're still in the age of the law. So you talk about, yeah, baptize me, John. I need to be baptized back into my faith. You talk about a humbling decision. That was huge. So while people acknowledge John as a prophet, they, on the other hand, did not accept Jesus as the expected one. Now, that's a strange thing. I'm going to read you 11 through 15 of chapter 7. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. His disciples and a great throng accompanied him. And just as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, only the son of his mother, and she was a widow, the only son of his mother, and a large gathering from the town that was accompanying her. And when they saw her, the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, don't weep. And he went forward and touched the funeral couch and the pallbearers stood and he said, young man, I say, do you arise? And the young man who was dead sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, why did I read that? Jesus seized the opportunity to confirm who he was. He's the Messiah. I mean, who else could actually raise the dead? He did. So the reality that he had done that and the fact that John, they were accepting John as the prophet from the Old Testament, he was wondering how come they wouldn't accept him. John could not deserve the honor of being called the greatest man who ever lived if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but he was. Verse 28, just to skip a little ahead here, it says, I tell you among those born of women, there's not a greater, there's not a greater one than, than John, but he that is inferior to the other citizens, he is inferior in the kingdom of God, is greater than he. And I'll talk about that in a little bit because that's kind of a confusing verse, but it's just saying John had nothing to make him special. He didn't have any money. He had no social prominence. He didn't have any formal education. He had none of those things, no achievements. He had no position. He had built no organization. He had no literary works or anything, but... God's standards are different than man's standards. So in God's perspective, John was greater than anyone before him. Why? Because he fulfilled his mission in life, what God wanted him to do. He did it. Even Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, all the other prophets and everything, he was actually called Jesus, called him greater than them. Why would he do that? because of his personal character, because of his privilege calling, and because of his powerful contribution. Now let's talk about each one of those. Let's talk about his character first, and that's verses 24 and 25. Let's read those. Reading from the Amplified, it says, In the messengers of John, having departed. Now, these, who are these messengers? John the baptizer was in jail, remember? And he was having doubts. And so he asked two of his disciples to go ask Jesus if he really was the Messiah. And, of course, Jesus said, What do you guys see me do? That proves it. So it says, after the messengers of John, the two disciples he sent, departed, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And what did he say? What did you go out in the desert to gaze on? A reed shaken and swayed by the wind? Then he said, then what did you go out to see? A, blind, a man dressed up in soft garments? That means royal garments, noble dress. What he meant by that. Behold, those who wear fine apparel and live in luxury are in the escort, or in the courts or palaces of kings. So what is he saying in those two verses? He's saying John's character. He was imprisoned at the time. We know that. But what was happening to him, and that Jesus was not exalting himself as king of kings, that made John kind of wonder. And so that's why he sent his two disciples and then when they left, Jesus spoke to the crowds to let them know what he thought of John. So what he said was, the first question was, what did you go to see, a reed shaking in the wind? So what was he saying there? He was saying, no, this is a very strong man. Why? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? He confronted the very king, Anipos, 
because he had married his brother's sister. So he was living in sin. Brother's wife. And so uh, that's why he was in prison because he had confronted Antipas. And that's why thousands of people traveled sometimes many, many miles. We're talking about as many as 40 or 50 miles into the wilderness to see John. Realize, you know, where did he baptize? Jordan River. Where's the Jordan River in relationship to Jerusalem? It's 2,500, well, let's see, it's uh, almost 3,000 feet in, in elevation lower than Jerusalem. So they had to go down a mountain and back up a mountain if they came from Jerusalem. If they came from Bethel or someplace in the north, they were also in the mountains. They had to come down to see him. So they traveled a long way and a long time just to hear John. Also, the soft clothing thing, she says, what, did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? That means, was he splendidly dressed? Is that why he came to see him? Did he look fantastic? And the answer is no. He had a camel coat on, and, you know, he would look pretty bad, actually. Also, what's interesting about that is, too, in Greek, sometimes that word that says soft can mean effeminate. Like, does he wear frilly? clothes like some of the nobles do, you know. Why would you go see this guy if he's not dressed like that? thought that was funny. <clears throat> John only spoke like a prophet. He lived like one. So his life was one of austerity and self-denial. We know that. And a lifelong separation and abstention from alcohol. He was told that beginning when he was born. And his integrity was apparent, obviously, because people saw it by his character. I mean, he was true to what he said. He didn't go away and eat or go away and act differently. He was true to his character. <clears throat> so the second thing is he had a privileged calling. And what's that privileged calling? Well, that's verses 26 and 27. It says, and then when did you, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. Behold, this is he concerning whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall make ready your way before you. Malachi 3.1. <clears throat> so his calling by God was quite phenomenal. Probably thought John the baptizer might be the Messiah. That might be another reason that they went to see him and hear him because he was the first one to ever start talking like that. Talking about repentance. They probably uh, thought that he had the marks of a prophet. He was powerfully pro proclaiming the word of God. He was confronting their sin. He was warning of coming judgment. He was calling for repentance. And he lived a life of self-denial. So he could have fallen into that category. But Jesus went beyond merely identifying John as a prophet. He declared him to be more than a prophet. What did he say? He identified him as the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1. Also prophesied the Messiah would come. Jesus announced that he had. Now, this is an interesting thought. Israel didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Anybody know? Simple reason. He yeah, didn't come to take over and drive out the Romans. That's what they expected him to do. That's why. So that's what they thought. So, but, but think of this. If they had believed Jesus was the Messiah, which they didn't, but if they had, John would have been the fulfillment of the Elijah in Malachi 4 or 5. There's supposed to be another Elijah come, if you want to go back and read that prophecy, before he comes the second time. <clears throat> so he, he would have been that Elijah. <clears throat> A parallel account in Matthew 11, I'm going to read that to you real quick, reveals something also. <clears throat> Verses 4 through 15. It's a little bit long, but I want to read it to you because it does reveal something. You'll see what it is here in a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hello. Report to John what you see and hear. That's the two disciples who came from John the baptizer. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor of God have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me finds no cause for stumbling in or through me and is not hindered from seeing the truth. Then as these men went their way, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. <clears throat> Why don't you go out in the wilderness to see a reed swayed by the wind? Why don't you go out to see then a man clothed in soft garments or noble garments? Behold, those who wear soft clothing or noble clothing are in the houses of kings. Why don't you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one 
even more remarkable and superior to a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger on ahead of you, and you shall make ready your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the baptizer. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until the present time, the kingdom of heaven has endured violent assault. Violent men seize it by force. Share in the heavenly kingdom is sought for with most ardent zeal and intense exertion. All the law and the prophets prophesied up until John. And if you are willing to receive and accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. And he who has ears to hear, let him be listening and consider and perceive by hearing. But what he said there is, for all the law and the prophets prophesied up till John, and if you are willing to receive and accept it, John himself is Elijah. In other words, Jesus could have taken over right then. But nobody did that. Nobody accepted him. I thought that was an interesting insight from Matthew. So, John's privileged calling made him the last and greatest of Old Testament prophets. Isn't that interesting? Why? Jesus is still alive. He hasn't died and he's in the age of the law. When does the age of the law stop? At Jesus' resurrection. That's when the age of grace starts. There's an Old Testament got gas or something because she was late mm -hmm. and then she'd draw her knees up and cry. Does that just happen with them? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's nothing I'm doing? No. Or anything? No. It, they get it. It's just like colic. It comes sometimes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so the third thing is John's powerful contribution. That's 29 and 30. It says, and all the people who heard him, even the tax collectors, I love it when they do that. So even the tax collectors, <laughs> acknowledge the justice of God in calling them to repentance and in pronouncing future wrath on impenit the impenitent, being baptized with the baptism of John. It says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers are the scribes annulled and rejected and brought to nothing God's purpose concerning themselves by refusing and not being baptized by John. So the powerful contribution that John made. So these two verses, Luke is speaking probably, we don't know for sure, that could be Jesus talking, but it's probably Luke. And the comment is clear. John the baptizer's impact on the nation of Israel is evident from the response of the people. So what does that mean? Many accepted his message. They did repent of their sins. They did get rebaptized into the Jewish faith. John's influence was, influence was so great, he divided the nation. Isn't that an interesting statement? His influence was so great, he divided the nation very clearly into people who accepted John the baptizer's message and people that didn't. And who were the ones that didn't? Pharisees, scribes, the leaders, the religious elite. They admitted, they, the people admitted they were sinners. God is holy, righteous, and just. They agreed to be baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes and so on and so forth rejected all of that and refused baptism by John for repentance. Why? They didn't think they were sinners. They're religious leaders. They don't sin. <laughs> I love that. It's really funny. <clears throat> both the self-righteous Pharisees and the scribes both describe themselves as what? Superior to the common people. That's just, and don't they still do that today? Of course they do. There was some euphoria surrounding John and his ministry. Like I said, some thought he might be the Messiah. Some were really emotionally moved by John's preaching. Of course they were. So after some time, the influence came back from the religious leaders. And so after John went away, they got basically talked into going back away from what they had actually accepted from John the baptizer and started looking at him as somebody that they didn't want to respect anymore. So despite John's exemplary character, his privileged calling and his great contribution, verse 28, we find out that... Uh, 
29, found out that those other people didn't accept him. And so therefore they started convincing other people of the same thing. So we can get two understandings of what John the baptizer said. Number one, he preached to the kingdom of God. He did. And it's an eternal spiritual reality. We know that. While John's ministry is temporal. So that means everyone in the kingdom is going to have greater spiritual privileges than the people that are in John's ministry. See what I'm saying? That's what he's saying in that verse there. He says, um, there's no one greater than John in his ministry on the earth, the temporal ministry. But he says, even John is inferior in the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual ministry, what we're going to be in when we go to heaven. Even those that are in the kingdom of God, says he that is inferior to the other citizens in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Because Jesus's ministry about going to heaven is greater than John's temporal ministry about sin here on earth. That's what he's really saying. Does that make sense? So the kingdom of God is promised in the Old Testament was a fulfillment of prophecy, obviously. And all believers enjoy greater privileges in the era of fulfillment. Are we in that era of fulfillment? Well, you are when you die. But we're not there yet. And when the rapture happens, we will be in that era of fulfillment. We will be raptured to spiritual life. So we have the full record of Jesus's life. We have the witness and spread of the gospel by the Spirit's power. And we anticipate Christ's glorious return to establish his earthly kingdom. Yes. And the cross and the empty tomb, though, mark the point of where the promise became fulfillment. So what, I, what he's saying is up to that particular point in time, John was the greatest. As soon as the earth fulfillment happens, then anyone in heaven is really greater than John's ministry on the earth. And that makes sense. So we are greater than John the baptizer because we know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and he didn't. Now, is John in heaven? Of course he is. When will he receive his true self as being a believer in Christ? Does anybody know the answer to that? He's an Old Testament prophet, so when's he going to get his resurrection body? When do we get it? With the rapture. When do the Old Testament prophets get it? At the second coming. It says that, I'll read you the verse, Revelation chapter 21. Actually, it's chapter 20. He says, uh, Then I said, Then I saw thrones, and sitting on them were those to whom the authority to act as judges and pass sentence was entrusted. I also saw the souls of those who had been slain with axes for their witnessing to Jesus and for preaching and testifying for the word of God. And who had refused to pay homage to the beast or his statue and had not accepted his mark or pertained, permitted it to be stamped on their foreheads. He says, and all they, and they're talking about the ones who had preached and testified for the word of God, and that's the Old Testament people, all lived again, ruled with Christ Messiah a thousand years. So that's when, according to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and this verse, chapter 20, Revelation verse 4, that's when the Old Testament saints get their bodies. Okay. And that would be John the Baptist because he's an Old Testament saint, even though it's in the New Testament. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I like that. <clears throat> so, we are greater than John the Baptist, not in terms of personal character, no, not in terms of influence, no, but in, because we have the privilege of proclaiming the gospel to other people. And John couldn't do that because he didn't know about the gospel. Right? He, what did he expect Jesus to be? King of Kings. He expected him to do what everybody else thought. He expected him to be the guy to go out and get rid of the Romans. He did. That's why he had to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? I have doubts. Uh, yes, John, I'm really the Messiah, but not. I'm here to save first and then to conquer second. So now, does anybody have any questions about these verses? Kind of an interesting way to approach this. Any, anything? Yes, sir. Can you explain that? Okay, take that verse, verse 28, and look at the first half of it. Among those born of women, there is not a greater one than John. That's temporal, okay? Human. Second verse, second part of that verse says, 
he that is inferior in the kingdom of God, now we're in heaven, is greater than John in his body on the earth. That makes sense? So it's really splitting those, those two. He's saying John is great as far as what he did as a human being, but even as great as he was and what he did pales in comparison to those who accept Christ and go to, go to heaven. So the key word in there is kingdom. Yes. In the kingdom. Yeah. Which means, uh, well, you look at it two ways. It could be heaven until Jesus actually comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom. But then people that are in that, of course, if they're human, they're human. They're in the thousand years. But we come back and help rule in that kingdom as in our resurrected bodies. Okay. But that's the difference in that verse. It's, it's talking about temporal, the first half of it, and spiritual, the second half. And in that sense, it makes perfect sense that even anybody in heaven is greater than John, what John did on the earth, because they accepted Christ. John couldn't do that. He died before that. I'm sure he didn't want to. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay. Any other comments about what we've talked about tonight? Well, let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you so much for the, uh, just the fact that we can hold your word in our hands and the fact that it is so enormously in depth, and so, so complex, so uh, enlightening, so amazing because we can find things if we've read through it dozens of times, we can still go back and find something new. And that's, that's amazing because it is the living word. It is your, your word, Lord, speaking to us. And the Holy Spirit enlightens us when we have trouble understanding something. So thank you, Lord, for that. We praise you for uh, the time that we can spend together studying your word. We pray that in this world, in this, this cruel and corrupt and wicked world that we live, that you would be more real to us every single day because we stay in your word and we grow spiritually so that nothing that happens in this world can, can upset us because we have the confidence in what you've promised. So we praise you, Lord, and thank you for that. We pray for a good week, some, a week that we can actually minister to others, share the gospel with others, uh, answer questions, whatever it may be, so that we can clear up some things people actually will understand and realize that there's a spiritual side to life. So be with us as we leave this place, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.